Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 44. A conversation with Chris Hampton of Power Company Climbing and Josie McKee with the Central Wyoming Climbers Alliance, or WIO Climbers, as we refer to it numerous times in the episode. They go by both names, so you won't get confused. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to travel up to Lander, Wyoming from Colorado to interview Chris and Josie to learn more about Chris's training company and Josie's role as executive director of WIO Climbers. Now, when I say I got to learn more about Chris's training company, we talked about just about everything except training. We really didn't talk about training at all. Since this podcast is all about advocacy, we largely focused on what it means to be a better climber in a non-physical sense. Chris shares a bit about starting the company to help climbers be better at climbing, but it didn't really take long for him to broaden that scope to help climbers just be better people. I personally think that the values and philosophy behind his company's brand so it really makes it stand out among the rest. For several years now, Chris has interviewed other advocates on one of his many podcasts to discuss many of the matters that have been also been discussed here on this show, and these conversations with him and his guests have been nothing short of enlightening, insightful, and just downright good. They're good, rich conversations. We've also both interviewed a handful of the same people on We have also both interviewed a handful of some of the same people, and Chris takes the time to reflect a bit on some of the biggest takeaways and lessons that he has gotten from those conversations. Josie also offers her thoughts on what she thinks it means to be a better climber, and her wild climbers have dedicated themselves to connecting with underserved communities in the Lander area. And for example, they have partnered with their local guide service there to offer clinics for native individuals in the Lander area. That's just one example of how the organization is taking the lead in this arena. And towards the latter part of the episode, we get more into the weeds with Josie on wild climbers and the work that they do on the lander front in places like Wild Iris and Sinks Canyon State Park. Of course, their impact reaches well beyond those two places, but those two are probably perhaps the most well-known crags amongst the greater climbing community. Wild Climbers works with numerous state and federal land managers on a variety of land management projects that look to provide new and improved infrastructure to help sustain the number of climbers that are in the local area. 
Lander, you know, hosts this thing called the International Climbers Fest each year. You may have heard of it. So with that being said, Lander is a climbing destination for many folks. So having sufficient infrastructure to handle the local folks and the visitors alike is imperative for them to have. I had such a great time visiting Lander, having the opportunity to meet Chris and Josie in person to have this conversation. So let's get on with it. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Hampton and Josie McKee. Well, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to meet me on a Sunday morning. It's my first time to Lander, and I couldn't think of a better way to yeah, have an introductory or have an introduction to the town, the climbers. I went to Wild Iris yesterday and had a great time. It was awesome. It was hot, but it was awesome. Met some really good local folks. And yeah, Josie, you kind of came in last minute, so I'm really glad you were able to join. And yeah. Chris, you know, I've been listening to your show for a number of years now, so I'm glad to finally meet you in person and get to chat and put you on the, on the other side of the microphone. Yeah, same. <laughs> I, I can't think of anything I'd rather do than record and make podcasts, so yeah. this is perfect. I know, this is a passion for you. And yeah, you could be doing any other thing on a Sunday morning, I don't know, going to church, hanging out with your new baby and everything, Chris. So really appreciate the time. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, I've learned a lot about you, Chris, just from listening to the podcast and stuff. But if you want to give an introduction a little bit where you're from, how you made it to Lander and all that good stuff, that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, long story short, my name's Chris Hampton. I run Power Company Climbing and the Power Company Podcast. And I think I host three other podcasts as well at this point. Oh, um, I thought it was like 30 other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> those, those are all in the making. Um, I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. I ended up in Lander uh, performing a song at the climbers festival years ago about Todd Skinner and, uh, met the woman who would become my wife here. And we eventually ended up back here. She, you know, she grew up here, so this is home for her and now it's home for me. Nice. Right on. What got you into climbing? Did that start in Cincinnati? That started in Cincinnati. It was actually a way for me to just stay out of trouble. Um, I had literally, uh, very literally gotten out of jail and decided I'm going to go back to that climbing gym that I went to one time. And, you know, I need a whole new set of friends. I need a whole new environment. So I'm just going to go there every single day, the minute I wake up. And after about 20 days of that, you know, showing up every morning, being there when the doors were unlocked, uh, the manager was like, why don't you just you know, vacuum or something. And then you don't ever have to pay again. And I'm like, <laughs> great. And I think that's the last gym membership I bought. And really? I've, you know, I've been going ever since. Wow. So. What's the gym scene like in, in Cincinnati now? I'm it's, sure it's, it, well, the gym scene back then was incredible. It was, was like it? really what, what early. Oh gosh. Hey, you said right before we recorded your terrible yeah, dates. So terrible put you on the dates. Spot. <laughs> um, that would have been around 95. And it was incredible. We had really early gyms. Um, uh, the ABS, the American Bouldering Series, started in that gym. And uh, a, a Crater Holds was an early hold company that started there. And we so we just had a really vibrant gym scene. Um, and it's similar now. You know, it's definitely grown up and modernized, but but a really vibrant community there. When did you end up moving here? You're asking me dates, yeah, Peter. I think five years ago is okay, when so we, pretty, pretty when we officially moved. Yeah, yeah, pretty recent. I mean, you spent a lot of time in the Southeast, Chattanooga, um, the Red, of course. Yeah, the Red. The Red is where I sort of grew up as a climber. I mean, um, it's just a stone's throw away from Cincinnati. 
Yeah, a couple hours. And I would spend a lot of summers in Wyoming, actually. Um, I spent a lot of time in Vitavu. That's probably the area I've spent the second most time in. Um, I would be there two or three weeks every summer for more than a decade and and never came to Lander until I came here to perform. And, and then I spent summers here instead. So, yeah, it, it sort of became home before I moved here. Was it sad to leave what you knew in the red? No, not really. Um, I don't. I don't spend a lot of time with nostalgia and I felt like I had done what I needed to do there and wanted to do there. And I would love to go back and visit, but I really feel like, uh, the red provided me what I needed and, and I gave it what I could and it was time to go. Well, you certainly, I think you certainly left a mark. I mean, you're gracing the cover of a new book about the red. Uh, that is not my doing at all. That's all, <laughs> that's all James Maples yeah. and Elodie Sirocco who took the photo. Um, but I'm, I'm really honored to be on there. Yeah. Did, did James reach out when uh, he's putting that book together or did he just slap it on there? He and did. Yeah. yeah. James is a, James is a friend and I've talked to him a lot about the history of the red and you know, I love those old stories. And like I said, that was, that was his doing. So he's, Top of mind to have on the show for next year. I mean, he's done incredible work down there. Are you familiar with him, Josie? Yeah, he, so we can probably get into this a little more later, but he just recently did an economic impact study for the Lander mm -hmm. area. So I've been working with him for the last couple of years on that. All right, cool. Well, let's, yeah, let's definitely circle back on that a little bit later. But, I mean, the guy's not even a climber, and he's right. one of the most passionate people about climbing I've ever met. And, I've you know, I go to the Access Fund annual conference every year, and he's been there a few times, got to chat with him a little bit. But, yeah, the extent of his economic impact studies there are incredible. It yeah. shows the real impact of what climbers can have in a rural area like that. Absolutely. I was just at a wedding with him in Knoxville and, and we talked a little about it and it's so fun talking to him because he's really passionate about climbing and the history of climbing and doesn't care to climb really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think his epic beard might get in the way. <laughs> um, you said you came to Lander to perform a song. I don't know if other folks know this about you, but you're a rapper at one point. I don't know if you mm -hmm. still have musical pursuits. Still, still am. Yeah. yeah. Just recorded a song a week or two ago. Nice. When, when did that, uh, when, when did that become a part of your life? Uh, well, I, I sort of was introduced to hip hop by uh, a neighbor who had just moved in. I grew up in a really white, racist neighborhood and and this kid moved in next door who had lived in New York and uh, brought with him a tape uh, just this mixtape from the radio and I listened to it and was blown away it was unlike anything I'd ever heard you know and this was probably 1982 and and I was just immediately like I need to hear all of this music that I can hear, you know, and he, he break danced a little bit. So he taught me some of that. And we spent a lot of time at skating rinks up until the time I was probably 14 and which would have been 88. And around that time, I went to my first rap concert, uh, the Fresh Fest in Cincinnati and it was like LL Cool J and Run DMC and Houdini and all these old, old groups. And that's when I fell in love with rapping. Um, and it's just this means of expression. I love words. I love language. And, um, and I started doing it then. And I put out my first tape in 1991. So... 
That's one of the dates I do remember. There you go. Don't forget <laughs> that one. How many songs were on that tape? Ah, that's a good question. <laughs> a small... I have I have one copy of the tape at my house. Okay. I think there were seven or eight songs cool. on it. Right on. How about the beats? Did you make those as well? Those I did not. Those were all um, just pause tapes is what we called them, where you would record an instrumental break from a song and then you would rewind it and record it again just in a dual cassette deck. Okay. And so you would have this instrumental break over and over and over. Or occasionally you could find an instrumental on uh, cassette singles back then. So I would just rap over those instrumentals. Oh, very cool. Can we find those anywhere online? these days? No, I no. don't think so. <laughs> I mean, it was so long before the internet existed. Right, of so, course. Yeah. I wasn't sure know, if you jumped and I put it on in the depths of Spotify or something. I don't think I've ever yeah. put those online. Yeah. Do you want to? Not really. <laughs> I just, I, I, I want to hear it. I never, I never heard it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, did, heard anything. I did re-record one of the songs um, years and years later. And that one may be online somewhere. I'm not sure. Um, you know, internet delivery of music has evolved so much that the, the stuff I put on there eons ago, I wouldn't even know how to find it sure. anymore. Yeah. Fair enough. Then breakdancing came into your life at 1.2, right? That's how it started. That's how it started. And it was really this like physical form of expression that I really loved at the time. And I think, you know, that physical form of expression evolved and climbing took over some of that. Yeah. Um, and, and still does to some degree, but I think I, I express myself better via words and, and that's the, that's the thing that ultimately took over. Well, that's the words thing is, um, something I really want to talk about here in a little bit. So I'll put a pin in that. Cause I think, yeah, you're a wordsmith of sorts through different, different, uh, avenues and mediums. So yeah, For sure. Yeah. I'd like to circle back on that. Right on. Appreciate it. How about you, Josie? Uh, where are you from? How'd you end up here? All the same kind when of When did questions. you start break dancing, Josie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't put me up to dancing in any way. No, I'm just kidding. Do you have a mixtape uh, out there as well? No. <laughs> um, so I grew up in California. Um, going, I started going to a climbing gym as a kid with some family friends. And it was also one of the early gyms that, mm. um, in Santa Cruz Pacific edge. Um, and that gym was founded by folks that were like Yosemite climbers and they started it as with, with the concept of like, this is to train people to climb outside really. Um, so that was the vibe that I was introduced to climbing through and, started as a teenager, like going out to places like Joshua tree and, uh, got like one little exposure to Yosemite Valley. We were, I was, I had, was no business climbing there at that point in time, but we were on our way to the Eastern Sierra to go bouldering and sport climbing and just got that like, Oh, this is, this is El Cap. This is people sleeping on the wall with their headlamps flickering on. And if that's what climbing can do for me, like that's what I want to do someday. So a few years later, like Yosemite climbing was what I wanted to do and, um, moved there and just started doing the big stuff. Like yeah. that's what I wanted to do. That's what inspired me a lot. Um, and then, uh, so I worked on search and rescue there in Yosemite, uh, which gave me a lot of the experience with medical search and rescue, rescue kind of stuff. 
and I was working with Knowles a little bit. I had come out here on some sport climbing trips, started teaching in the EMT program, which is the Knowles has the Weiss campus out here where the EMT program runs. Um, and so for a few summers, I was coming out here teaching EMT courses in Lander and I just fell in love with it more and more. Also was getting to the point where I was like, you know, climbing the next big hard thing every time I go rock climbing is not mentally sustainable for me. Right. And sport climbing is really fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and so eventually I was like, I think I want to live in Lander. I don't know what I would do here year round, but I got to figure it out somehow. And fortunately or unfortunately, the pandemic shut down everything else that I had going on in my life. And I was like, well... I don't have anything to do year-round anywhere. I should just move to Lander and see what happens. Uh, so that's kind of how I wound up here full-time after um, probably a, a decade of being in and out of here. So, yeah. So recent, recent transplant yeah, full-time? Yeah, a little over two years ago. Okay, cool. When, what were those uh, Yosemite years? Sorry, I'm going to put you on the spot for years, uh, too. <laughs> let's see. I worked search and rescue from 2013 to 2015. Um, and I was spending a bunch of time around there for a couple years prior. So probably 2010, 2011, something like that. And then moved to Mariposa after I left the, the job there, mm -hmm. um, for the next few years before I moved here. Do you know Alexa Flower by mm -hmm. chance? Cool. Yeah. I went to college with her. Oh, cool. My early climbing partners. <laughs> yeah, she's great. She was uh, she was around in Yosemite when I was on the SAR site. And then um, she actually came into the SAR site after I left. But I was I was around a lot when she was there. So, yeah. Good deal. So, yeah, not, not a break dancer, not a rapper, but passions outside of climbing. Uh, so I mentioned this concept of it not being mentally sustainable to climb big stuff all the time. And I've gotten really interested in the psychology into neuroscience. I kind of geek out on yeah. all of this stuff, which I think was inspired by how fearful I am of rock climbing. Like mm -hmm. I get really scared with it and I've worked through it a lot, but it's fun to learn about the human mind. Um, so that's, that's one of my passions is kind of geeking out on that. And I do a bit of mindset coaching for climbers and, um, I also like to consider myself a storyteller. So um, I like writing a lot, but like verbal storytelling as well is fun for me. All right. Yeah. Do you have any interest in pursuing a kind of like degree or continuing education in that field of psychology? Um, I've thought about it. Um, what I, the reason I haven't gone into it is I'm like, I actually don't really want to do research. Like I, I'd love to have a PhD. Like I'd love to learn all the stuff, but I don't really want to like dive into it in that way. Um, and so for now, just reading a lot and learning a lot is a fun way to geek out on it. Maybe someday. <laughs> well, I love to chat to you about it some more. Cause I mean, I can be f pretty fearful in climbing too on the big stuff. I, mean, mm -hmm. we, I mentioned my climbing accident in the black Canyon before we started recording and I never faced that head on. I never like addressed that trauma mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. And it just scares the hell out of me now to mm -hmm. be on anything big. So I became a sport climber again after that a little bit, which yeah. is totally fine. Cause it is super fun. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, it's a interesting, I've chatted with a lot of people and I've also had my own history of trauma and climbing and, um, it's something that I love to help people out with because what I found without going too far down a rabbit hole, um, was that I had to ask myself 
the question point blank, why do I rock climb? And why, like, do I want to keep doing these big pursuits and answer that and figure out like really the depth of those reasons in order for me to keep doing it after a bunch of bad stuff happened. Um, so if that's something that's helpful. Yeah, no, it is helpful. I mean, my, my wife and I were talking about your why on the drive to Lander mm-hmm. yesterday. It's like understanding your why no matter what you're doing. So I think that is perhaps the most important question in any mm-hmm. major pursuit like this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, right now, I mean, I have you on the show because you're the executive director of the Central Wyoming Climbers Alliance. Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention that. That's yeah. why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> so we, I got kind of like a like a two-parter. Um, they're going to, I think, mesh together a little bit for this conversation. Um, you know, I wanted to theme the conversation a little bit around being a better climber. And I was inspired by you, Chris, because I think that's a, a value you, you have behind the power company um, training company that you have. So I'd like to start out with that a little bit. You know, a few questions might be directed towards you, Chris, but Libby, please, or I just called you Libby. Josie. Josie, thank <laughs> you. Libby is the other uh, wild climbers. Um, staff member but Libby uh, was supposed to be here but yes. found her way out very conveniently <laughs> yeah yeah last 11th hour so Josie my apologies no worries. Um, feel free to jump in at any point you know if you got something to say like please please go for it sounds um, great so yeah power company um, love to hear more about it the when the why the who the what everything and maybe most importantly the philosophy and values behind the company Yeah, I think, you know, originally it just started as a a way to help climbers improve at climbing. Like that was, that was the main goal day one, um, using myself as an experiment because at the time there wasn't a lot of, um, information about how to improve as a climber, but it pretty quickly became apparent that while improving as a climber or improving at climbing, we also are improving as humans in general. You know, there's so many lessons that can be taken from climbing and applied to the rest of your life that that just became far more interesting to me. And, and frankly, getting stronger fingers is really easy in comparison to becoming a a stronger human uh, all around and so I've used, you know, the, the physical exercise as a way to um, bolster you know, the, the, the aspects of being a human that matter far more than, you know, having strong fingers or having a, a strong pull up or something like that. Um, so we've, we've sort of used the word become a better or the phrase become a better climber um, as opposed to become better at climbing, Mm -hmm. um, because that's sort of how I believe it should all go. You know, let's, let's tackle all of these issues that we're facing. Like you were just talking about Josie. Um, you know, you recognize that you're feeling this fear and you, you have to lean into it a little bit. You have to face it. And there, along with maybe you do have weak fingers in comparison to other climbers, they're, comes all of this doubt and all of this insecurity and all of these things that are so much more difficult to, to face and to work through. Um, so essentially we're just a a company who, um, disguises, uh, working on you as a human 
through the the lens of physical exercise, basically. I love that. Well, I see being a better climber is, I was thinking about this in the drive here, and it's like a three-legged stool for me in a way. I suppose kind of uh, kept defaulting to a little bit. There's the, yeah, being better socially, mm -hmm. uh, which a lot of conversations you've had uh, are based around the social values in, in the climbing community. Environmentally, where Josie might, you might come in some more about stewardship and land policy and public lands and all that. Absolutely. And then uh, the fiscal side, just being, just improving at the sport, if you so desire to do that. Not everyone's motivated by improvement, but that's the kind of way, I, that's the way I was kind of looking at this, is this three-pronged approach and how to be a better climber. And that translates into being a better human. Would you concur with that or have uh, For anything sure. to add? Uh, 100%. And it's interesting because when I started climbing, it was not, I didn't care at all about the environment. Like it just didn't matter to me. I, I was a break dancer, a rapper, a skateboarder. I'm like, put cement over everything, you know, let's, yeah. <laughs> the more area we can skate in, the better, you know, the more clubs, the better. Yeah. Um, you know, I was far more attracted to New York city than I was to Yosemite. Um, and I think it was through climbing that I, I learned more about the environment, learned to appreciate the natural world uh, and learned to appreciate more, especially as I got older and uh, saw more of the world and uh, just got to interact with more, more people in different social experiences. Um, I just realized that those those ideas I had when I was 18 19 years old when I first started climbing um, were very very limited and close-minded frankly mm -hmm. um, so it's really opened up my climbing in general has opened up my mind to see that the environmental side matters that the the mental side matters as much as the physical side um, so, so yeah, I, I definitely think it's a, a, a much more broad, um, not even sure what the right word is here, but it, it's more broad than a lot of us give it credit for when we get started. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, you said you started climbing around 95, the access fund was four years old at that time. Yeah. I mean, I don't, it's, that's, that's very young and I don't think maybe these environmental and social conversations were happening like the way, like the way they are now. How have you seen that grow since then? Have you really, did you really start to take notice at some certain point about those environmental themes and, and social themes as they've, as you've climbed over the last 25 years or so? You know, it's interesting. I, I never really paid that much attention to what everyone else was seeing. You know, it was like, I come from a, a background of sort of shifting perspectives from a really white racist neighborhood into black culture and, you know, trying to fit into that world and then into rock climbing where it was very white. Um, and I was just bouncing between these worlds for a lot of years. So I never really recognized that climbing was as white as it is you know mm -hmm. um, especially as it was in the 90s and I started having these conversations more focused on the social side of things just because it was interesting to me not because I was trying to um, 
make any sort of statement or because I thought it was important for the community. It was totally a selfish thing. Like I want to talk to these people who have these interesting stories. Um, and it really wasn't until the pandemic that I realized how, how much it mattered to people to hear those other stories. I mean, big time pandemic, um, George Floyd murder. Yeah. You know, right after that, I, I saw you really step, step up, I guess. And not that you weren't like down, you know, stepping down before, but you you got really vocal about that. And I think that's really become associated with your brand. When you look at the power company and you're like, I know what those guys value. And right after that happened in, uh, was that June, 2020? Mm-hmm. Or end of May, end of May, I think 2020, you know, more and more conversations on your show, you know, started showing up around, around these issues and, and things. And you got very vocal about it. Um, do you want to talk some more about that? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I had been having those conversations, like I said, just as a, a selfish thing. And, uh, my friend Tonde was in town and he was staying at my house and, and we were talking about, um, black climbers being on podcasts and I'm like, I'm like, well, I've never, you know, I, I haven't like had climbers on because they're black. Um, I had had a couple podcasters reach out to me and ask, how do you get black people on your podcast? And I was like, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. And I'm having this conversation with Tonde and I'm like, well, I've had the Brown Girls Climb episode. And he's like, well, you've had me on your podcast. And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I have. And he's like, and you've had IO on your podcast. I'm like, yeah, I guess I have. And it just hadn't occurred to me that I'd um, already been telling these stories. Um, so at that point, I decided I need to make sure that that for now, because I have this platform, I'm giving that platform to the voices who aren't getting their stories told. It just hadn't occurred to me that these voices weren't out there a lot already because I was paying attention to those voices. Um, so that became a big part of the mission was making sure that that climbing was as equitable a space as I could help it be. How about you, Josie? Um, the Wild Climbers came out with a very, they stamped their name uh, in congruence with Black Lives Matter movement and everything. You guys made a statement about it. Did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think as an organization that is promoting tourism, for lack of a better word, climbing tourism into a state and a community that is predominantly white, it's been a big effort for us to make sure that we're, well, I don't know that we can actually make sure, but to try to make it feel like a comfortable space for people to come in, especially during the Climbers Festival when you know we bring in 800 or so people from all over the globe. It's the International Climbers Festival, but, you know, predominantly across the U.S. Um, and elevating a diversity of voices in that space, um, whether it's keynote speakers or clinics that we put on, creating affinity spaces, that kind of thing. So people feel like, oh, yeah, we can come to Lander, feel safe, feel like we have a space um, no matter who we are. Um and then some other things throughout the year that, so we, we have a very large indigenous population around mm. the Lander area. Mm-hmm. So we put on a native climbing clinic um, for native youth during the festival. 
Um, and we're trying to reach that community more because I think climbing is such a valuable resource that yeah. it does. It it makes you a better person in general, I think. Um, and so being able to provide that to everyone is something that we, we want to do as an organization. Yeah. I was curious about what opportunities might exist for you guys to help those underserved populations and communities. Yeah. I, yeah. One of the things that we've worked with a bit is the Boys and Girls Club of the Eastern Shoshone. They usually bring out some kids every year and um, just, you know, trying to reach a little bit into those communities yeah. as best we can. And we provide scholarships for all, like all of the youth clinics that we put on at the festival are free. And we provide a bunch of different scholarships for youth education throughout the year, whether it's the summer camp, the Climb the Grand Teton scholarship that we give for high school students. Um, That's awesome. So that so that it is accessible because climbing can be quite expensive and daunting to get into if you're, if you haven't ever been exposed to it and you don't have people in your community already that are doing it and have the equipment and the skills. There are so many barriers to the entry to the sport, I think. And absolutely. I think I, I've never had to experience them. I don't know. Like, no, we just never had to think about it oh. and it, 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 it can get forgotten about if you, if you're not exposed to it. And yeah, that's just unfortunate. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I like I mentioned to you, I when I found this thing, it was getting out of jail, you know? And I was like, I just made a decision. Oh, I'm going to go to that gym that's close to my house and that I know I can walk into because I'm a white guy and it's comfortable for me in there because everyone else is a white guy, you know? Mm -hmm. That's how it felt. So it was very easy for me to go in and get started with this thing that I think is, can be a really important thing for your mental health, you know, and for your development as a human. Yep. hundred percent. Real quick, Joe, is there a guide service in Lander? Yeah. Winter yeah. climbing guides. Okay. Um, and they work with us on all of our programming. Like they're the, they're the guides for all of our festival clinics that we mm -hmm. put on so that we're, you know, making sure that everything is done safely and sure. they have professional level instruction on all the things that we're doing out there. Um, and they help us out with the, well, the, the youth summer camps that we help fund are put on, um, in collaboration, collaboration between the elemental climbing gym here and mm -hmm. winter climbing guides. That's Steve's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I, that's what I was, that's why I wanted to ask. I was hoping you're going to respond with that is how you can collaborate with local guide services in your town. If you yeah, want to put on these clinics, um, for, yeah, for folks who might not have access otherwise. And do you make, yeah, you make it free. I mean, you make it so accessible. Like how does that programming, are you able to provide some nuts and bolts and how that's structured? Yeah. Um, so I mean, one thing, Wonder River Climbing Guides, one of their, mission statements is to help make climbing accessible to folks. So, um, they give us a bit of a discount on some of the programming that we do. Uh, we also get, um, a bunch of grant funding. So we are paying them for their services, but sort of at a discounted price. And then, um, we, you know, I mentioned this when we were chatting earlier, but the Lander Community Foundation is one of our sources of funding, the Wyoming Community Foundation. So I do a lot of grant writing and community fundraising and just try to get that money together so that we can make it accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you some more about that yeah. because that's what we're looking to do as well in the Gunnison Valley. So, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, I took some time over the last couple of weeks to listen, re-listen to some of those old episodes that you've done, Chris, with uh, Genevieve Walker, with mm. um, uh, Brown Girls Climb and some other ones. What lessons have you taken away from those 
conversations, quotes, ideas, um, anything you're taking away that you can pass along to the listeners here? I can, I can actually tell you the biggest lesson I've learned from any of those episodes. And Genevieve was in the room when this happened, um, as well as Betty, who run, ran Brown Girls Climb, uh, founded Brown Girls Climb. And it was during the recording of an episode that never actually came out. Mm. Um, and it was a room full of mostly black and brown women. And it was this incredible conversation. And I had my podcaster hat on, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to disseminate this information to a mostly white audience. And, uh, Betty, who was, we were at her house and she stopped me in the middle of a question and she's like, I, I have to stop you, you know? And I'm like, okay. And she's like, you, you're very much making this about you, about explaining this to white people, mm. you know? And this isn't about you right now. This is about our experiences. And I'm like, you know, at first I, I'm not sure I quite got it in the moment. I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm trying, I'm a podcaster. I'm trying to give this information to people in a way that they'll understand it. But as I sat with that, I realized she was totally right. And my, my role is not to explain the, you know, what I'm seeing or what I'm privileged enough to be able to sit in a room and listen to these women talk. My role is not to uh, disseminate that information. It's just to hold that space and let them tell their stories and, and put those stories out there into the world as they are. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's the biggest lesson I learned. Um, we all, I've talked about this concept before. We all wield a different, uh, weapon for lack of a better word, uh, when it comes to things we believe in and things we want to, to give to people. And, you know, like Josie is very good at the, the more political side of things, which is a side I could not engage in. You know, I would be terrible at it. Um, and at the time I was wielding a pretty big hammer um, that was just I would just swing the hammer and whatever broke, broke, you know, <laughs> um, my weapon has gotten more precise over time. And I think that's one of the things I've learned is not only am I there in those situations just to hold the space and provide the platform, that's my, that's my only role there, but also to, to value all sizes and types of weapons in this, you know, in this storytelling, in this fight, um, the people with the the biggest hammers are doing a valuable service and the people with the small precise screwdriver are as well so mm, i like um, that so i value everybody's take on it whether whether it makes me feel really uncomfortable and you know have to look at myself in a different light or not um i, I value all of those so yeah, how have, you, how have you felt going into these conversations? You always in? nervous. Always nervous. Yeah. Always nervous. Always uncomfortable. And I really, I mean, that's one of the things climbing has taught me is I really like getting uncomfortable. I like being nervous. I like 
some fear there. I like not knowing what I'm getting into uh, and then figuring my way through it. Uh, and I'm going to make mistakes, you know, I'm going to screw up a lot. And, and that's totally a human thing to do and totally okay. And I, I like putting that out for people like here, watch me stumble. Um, and maybe you can take something away from it and not stumble in that same place so that you can stumble later on. Mm-hmm. We've got to, we've got to interview several of the same people mm-hmm. in this space. Um, Brianna, Veronica Baker, yep. um, Shoma, they all sat on the show. Um, Incredible humans, all yeah, of them. Yeah, it's, um, those interviews in particular, anything stood out? I, mean, I think Veronica in the, in the Climbing Initiative is filling such a wonderful niche, you know, that there's yeah. the Access Fund, there's the American Alpine Club, and now there's a Climbing Initiative filling something like in between both, not focused on policy and keeping areas open, but providing these opportunities, breaking down these these monetary barriers, these um, material barriers, just getting gear and things to the folks all around the world now. It's remarkable. Is anything out of those few conversations that we've shared with those interview with those uh, with those guests? Has anything jumped out at you with those folks? I think I think you just said it. Um, what they're all doing, what they all have in common, is that they're not just following the the mode of speaking about these social issues or access issues uh, or community building issues. Instead, they're finding what's not being talked about or, or where it's not being taken care of. And they're filling those spaces and, you know, completing this conduit that allows us to, to all be a bigger community instead of these little satellite communities out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I really appreciate that aspect from all of them. They're, they're all very willing to work with people who don't quite understand and to explain it to people. And, and I appreciate that so much. When I interviewed Shelma, um, Shelma's become one of my best friends. Um, which is one of the like dangers of doing this is that these people become really good friends of mine. And then I never have them on the podcast again because we're always (laughs) just talking without microphones. Right. Um, And Shelma and I've had so many conversations since uh, that first conversation, which almost didn't even happen um, because she was nervous about, should I be talking to these white men about these things that I'm, I'm doing, you know, that they, they aren't going to understand maybe that they're not going to have good questions for. And she trusted me anyway, mm-hmm. uh, and had that conversation from which I learned a massive amount and I'm still learning. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I feel like I'm in a lucky position doing this show in conjunction with the access fund, doing it for them. So I have good excuse to get to talk to people because I'm associated with uh, this advocacy based organization, but yeah, coming in kind of blind in a way from a different, from a different perspective or something on, you know, in in your case, it can be, could be challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like that, you know, and I appreciate that these people are out there who let me stumble through it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Josie, you said that you've done a number of interviews recently in the last past couple of months. Been kind of, you know, everything's been stacking on top of you here with podcasts and radio interviews and video interviews. Have you gotten a chance to talk about these kinds of things as well um, on behalf of the Wild Climbers? You know, it's interesting. It hasn't come up as much in those 
previous interviews um talking about it in the in the festival promotional video so uh, we were mentioning this before the podcast but the international climbers festival is coming up next year on its 30th year and so in promoting that um we're putting together a little film about the history of wild climbers the history of the festival um and so yeah this conversation has come up just that i think that was the only one that we've talked about this and what we're doing with the festival which is you know what i mentioned a minute ago is trying to elevate different voices and provide a safer space Mm -hmm. for anybody that comes to visit lander yeah how many festivals you've been to now um so I directed the festival in 2021 and then we hired another person, Grace Templeton, to direct the festival last year um, while I'm still the executive director of the organization that puts it on. So I was still very involved. Um, prior to that, I had like popped in and out of a few festival events over the previous summers that I had been to, um, been in town for um, probably, probably three other festivals before that. Okay. Were these conversations or topics or clinics ever a part of it earlier on? I mean, how many how many festivals have you been to, Chris? I don't have the slightest idea. <laughs> You're asking him I for mean, numbers I again. Know, I know, about this number thing again. I mean, ten, ten, ten or more. Ten or more. I think. Yeah, Chris yeah. probably has more of a perspective on the culture of the festival um, prior to me being around. Well, actually, Josie, I you know, and I've told you this. I think that watching you choose keynote speakers and the the effort you put into diversifying the festival in 2021 was really inspiring to me and i think important um whereas you know i can i can create these podcasts that are a selfish thing for me and yes they reflect on my business uh, and on my brand but still that's mostly me um I'm really only putting myself out there Mm. Um, and watching YO climbers and the climbers festival step up and include some speakers who frankly, you know, after talking to them, were a little nervous about coming to Wyoming and speaking, um, including them, helping them feel safe and, and putting their stories out there for the larger climbing community uh, and and allowing them to be face to face with all of these people I think is so huge and the changes that you made in 2021 uh you know were carried over this year with Grace's festival and and I just think it's a such a huge improvement on what the festival used to be um and making it more of what I think it always meant to be so, well, that's great to hear that. Hopefully, we continue going in the same trajectory. Yeah. I I sure do hope so. Yeah. I want to go back to this topic of words and wordsmithing, and and you know, kind of being a progress of being of using your words to to stumbling advocate, through my words, stumbling <laughs> through words. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you, you've done it in so many different ways through through your musical pursuits, through all these podcasts you host, through emceeing, and all. And, and you're an author now too. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you working on another book? Working on another book. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's, it's two more actually. Two more. God, <laughs> it's really impressive. And I, you know, I re listened to Genevieve's episode in the uh, last week, and mm. you guys talked about words. Yeah. And love languages. And love languages. And, yeah. 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 I'm really glad you remember all that from yeah a couple of years ago. But mm-hmm. um, 
yeah, we, words can be healing. They can be damaging and using the right words obviously is really important. And we can think we're using the right words. And when we try to explain something, when we try to give directions to, to go somewhere, we think like in our mind, we have it, we might be so, so familiar with something when we try to describe it, it makes sense to us, but not to somebody else. Right. And so when it, when you're trying to talk about some of these things and there might be well-intentioned, they still might come off wrong. And it's more, <clears throat> excuse me, it's more important than how they are perceived than how you said it. Yeah. So it can still be hurtful in a way and you wouldn't know it. Are you able to elaborate on that much more? Yeah. You know what? I, one of my favorite things is fighting on the internet. Uh, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to not do dangerous, that as much. That's one of my game. least favorite things. <laughs> it's a dangerous game. But my, my wife knows, like she sees this twinkle in my eye and she's like, oh, someone said something on the internet, didn't they? And I'm like, oh yeah. Um, but I've had these arguments with people online about people saying, oh, that's just a word, you know? And I'm like, you, you can't believe that words have the power to inspire but then not believe that they also have the power to harm. You know, you just can't do that. And I think most of us understand that words can inspire. You know, we hold these, these famous speeches in high regard. You know, those are just words. Uh, how are they having this power on you if they don't have power? Um, so I, I like to question my assumptions and I like to... Um, be forced into questioning my assumptions. And one of the first times that that had really been pushed on me uh, and pushed on me is totally the wrong word, but um, given to me, gifted to me um, was in the Brown Girls Climb episode when they mentioned that the word beaner was, was harmful mm -hmm. and it had just never occurred to me Um that that word was something that could be taken a, a totally different way. And, and some people pushed back on that, like, well, you know, it's not meant to be harmful. And I'm like, yeah, but it's also really easy to just change it and just stop using that word entirely, you know? And I still slip up and I still say I said, it. I said it yesterday. Yeah. And right, but right when I said it, that jumped to mind, like, oh, no, let's, let's bring it back. Yeah. And think about it for next time. Yeah, we're still going to mess up. Um, but that's what happens, you know, when we're changing the language that we use, which is something that we do every day. It's how we evolve. You know, we, we come up with new words. We, we gather new words from the people around us and we let go of old words that we used. And why not make the effort to do that if we know that that word can be harmful to someone else? We have so many other words to describe the tools that we're using why not use them? You know, it's something I, I watched and learned in hip hop through not only, you know, these are words that the black community can use and I cannot. And, and that's totally okay. I have no desire to use that word. You know, I have lots of other ways to describe my friends, my black friends, the people that I care about. Um, and watching some rappers make a big deal out of we don't curse in our music um, because we have better words to do that. I'm, I don't think you should have to do that. And I think sometimes, you know, uh, cursing is the best way to, uh, to describe something or to, uh, you know, to, to emote. But 
not always. And, and just leaning on whatever feels easiest is not the way. And it's not, it's not climbing either. You know, it's not what we learn as climbers. We don't just take the easy way or we'd walk up the back of boulders or we'd walk up the trail to the top of El Cap instead of climbing the damn thing. (laughs) Um, so, so I don't mind taking the hard way and, and struggling through it. I cuss like a sailor. And so, but <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I use it all the time, but me I too. Kind of, I'm stopping here, myself but... from doing it on here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, feel free, you know, let, you know, let your expression be known, but yeah, I keep myself a little more PG on the, on the show, but we're all adults. So it's all right. Josie, did you want to add something? Yeah. I was going to say, I really appreciated the way you articulated that. Cause did I we articulate were... it? Oh yeah, <laughs> words. definitely words. words. <laughs> um, so we've spent a bit of time in the lander area going through root names yeah. and trying yeah. to rename yes. some stuff. Um, and those are words and mm-hmm. there's a, you know, our access committee is the one that's going through the book and we're all, I mean, with the exception of me there, it's a bunch of white dudes, mm-hmm. um, going through it. And we had this conversation around the word savage mm. and, them saying, well, the word, like the dictionary definition of the word doesn't mean anything offensive. And I was trying to articulate it in a way that you just did, that it's like, it's not really about what the dictionary definition of the word was. It's about the effect that it can have on people. And why does it matter to us when we can, I mean, it's just a rude name, like change it. If yeah. it's, if it's gonna make people feel uncomfortable. Yep. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, when I built the machine shop, the, the gym I have at my house, um, I took from, from Todd Skinner, uh, and his gym here, the grading system they used and the system they used back then was easy, tricky, hard, desperate, savage Haas. And, and that was, you know, a lot of the locals really loved that system of grading and I used it for a number of years and then just decided, why do I need to include the word savage? Like there's so many other words I could use. So I just took it out and replaced it. And what did you you replace it with? You know what? That's a good question. I was just trying to remember (laughs) and I, I interact with the grades so little that I don't remember, but I'm going to look it up right now. I was just thinking about the word heinous is the word that I use to have a similar connotation to how people describe a lot of the climbing, particularly at wild iris. That's like, there's some moves like you're pulling hard off of a mono and you're probably going to blow a tendon. (laughs) I, Oh, I can't look it up here because I don't have the internet. Let's see. It's <laughs> easy, tricky, hard, desperate. I can't even remember. That's right. It's actually been a blessing because now I just don't even care about the grades anymore. You know, it's yeah. led me into this better state of mind altogether. Um, taking away these these words that we use to pigeonhole things, you know. Um, but I, I, I agree with the, the root name conversation because ultimately, you know, yes, it's, it's fun to name something and, you know, it's like you're giving it this personality, but then you're giving it to the community and it's not yours anymore. So, Mm -hmm. so in my opinion, the community should have say over what it's called. And if it's harmful to some members of the community, why not change it? Yeah. 
how important is the is the name of the root to the root itself? Yeah, I mean it, it's probably not that. I mean, I had a gentleman on a, a, when I had um, uh, gosh, uh, Bethany Levowitz from mm-hmm. Brown Girls Climb is it. Many episodes ago, this gentleman was on uh, as part of that episode, and he's like, I've named so many roots. If someone changes tomorrow, I could not care less. Right. It's like, I named him something silly. It was like the song I was listening to on the, on the radio on the way over here. Like, how much does it really matter? I mean, if you wanted to rename the nose on LCAP, like, it's still going to be the same root. I exactly. Mean, it's just a different name. Like, we've, we've sort opinion, of, yeah. I've had this tricky relationship and over the last couple of years with the history of climbing, you know, I love the history of climbing. I've spent a lot of time reading about it and learning about it and romanticizing it. Um, but we give so much power to the first ascensionist of something, um, to give it the grade, to determine where the bolts go, if it's a sport climb, to, if it's a boulder to determine which holds you grab and how you grab them when you're starting. Um, all these strange rules revolve around giving the power to the person that we think did this first. Um, and I think if we stripped that away to a degree, it w- wouldn't necessarily solve the problems, but it would make them easier to, to tumble around with. Um, not having to ask this person who did this thing 40 years ago and hasn't thought about it since how we should interact with it now. As I mentioned something else about uh, root development and stuff, it's escaping me, but, um, Oh, I was going to ask you another date question. Um, very broadly, of course. But, you said yeah. it was the last one. Of I, I lied. I'm full of it. You um, just lined up date questions. Yeah, for me, that's all I got for you, Chris. Um, <laughs> Was it recent when you removed Savage from your grading system? Uh, was it, you know, when, uh, when these conversations really started picking up steam? Or is this a while ago when you wanted to use a different word for that grading system? It was uh, just a couple of years ago, a few years ago, um, maybe right before the pandemic, actually. And it was because I had realized that, you know, I live right next door to uh, a population of uh, indigenous people. And I'm like, why, why might they not feel safe in the climbing community? Why, why are they not engaging? And are there barriers that we're putting up and not realizing it? And, and that I started thinking about all the roots that have the word savage or the word Indian or, you know, all sorts of words, uh, not, not even just climbing roots, but streets around here or, neighborhoods or, you know, with words that might be seen as uh, derogatory. And then I'm like, oh, I'm in my gym. I've got this word that, you know, and, and I don't use the word. I, I never have. It's never been a descriptor for me. And I know it is for a lot of people and that's fine. But now that we know that it's a word that might be harmful, we can use another descriptor and I can get rid of that grade in my gym and, and we can rename things because the names of them aren't them. Like you said, Peter, mm-hmm. we, we can change those and it's going to be fine. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Words matter. I'd be remiss to uh, move on from this topic of root names and things without mentioning the slavery wall mm-hmm. and 10 sleep. Yep. Yeah. Um, have you both been to, been to that wall? I mean, I have not been to the wall. I've not spent much time in 10 sleep at all, but I mean, obviously I talked with Genevieve a bit about it and, and I drove down to 10 sleep to talk to her. Um, 
And I, I think they did some smart things there. But just the the way the one root name specifically that you mentioned in her episode was happiness and slavery. Mm-hmm. Jane's addiction song. Right. But it's, it might not be like, yeah, it's like the kind of that dictionary definition thing you mentioned, Josie, but yeah. it does, doesn't matter. Like, how is that being perceived? And like yeah. some of the other names too. It's just like, what the? Yeah, I, I just put out a cowboy poem I'd written years ago that used a bunch of root names from the Lander area. And while I was recording it, um, I used the word slave twice mm-hmm. uh, in the poem for root names that are, um, and I say no slave to the stronghold of decay. And I recognize that, you know, words that we, uh, words denote something and we have to be careful and do our due diligence when we're using words that could be taken the wrong way, even if that's not how we mean them. So I definitely spent some time thinking about how the word is used in this poem and does it fit? Should I use it? Should I change it? Um, And ultimately I left it in there because it is contextualized within the poem. Um, If you just walk up to a wall and you see this phrase happiness and slavery and you don't know the Jane's addiction song you don't know the history of it you don't know why the the wall is called the slavery wall there's no context at all it's all stripped away Um, and I think we have to keep that in mind that just because we have the context of it when we name the thing doesn't mean the people coming also have that context exactly yeah were there a lot of roots around here that had to be renamed or redacted a fair few, definitely. Um, I think a lot of them maybe like less blatant than things like yeah. the slavery wall intensely. Um, but yeah, definitely a few. Yeah, and I think those guys uh, and and women yeah. because I think we have a great um, history here of women developers as well. But they were they were trying to use Western themed names, and they were pulling from you know, old Western movies and poems and songs. And, and there were certainly, um, slurs for indigenous people in those songs, whether they were meant that way or not, isn't really important. The, the fact that they're decontextualized and put into these guidebooks is the point. And I think we've had a pretty good method of dealing with it. We've had some conversations with some people that had reached out via the internet and <laughs> trying mm-hmm. to, trying to get angry about it. And we're like, Oh yeah, yeah, we're like, we're working on this. And then Steve Bechtel, the guidebook author has reached out to a bunch of the first ascensionists. And most of them have come back with a new name or like, I don't care, rename it with whatever you want to rename it. And so the new guidebook, I think that's coming out next year should have a bunch of the new names in it. Exactly. You talk to the first ascensionist and they're like, I don't care. If yeah, I haven't yeah. interacted with it in years, like do it, do what you need to do. Yeah, um, so often. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is an appropriate question, um, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Like, are you guys hopeful for these conversations that are happening and moving in the right direction? Like, are we, I want to make sure I'm like in a position to pose this question and have this be perceived from a white male's perspective. Like, can I answer yes? Like this is moving in the right direction or do we need to engage with someone who is a person of color and they can give their perspective? And like, are you guys hopeful for the way we're going right now? 
I am for sure. Um, I'm, I'm hearing more perspectives and different voices and, and I think those people are being uplifted the way that they deserve to be, um, to some degree anyway. Uh, it's, we got a long way to go, but I am hopeful of the direction that it's going. And, and I think pointing it out was step one, you know, um, and maybe some things are still being pointed out and we're all still learning and we're all still fucking up over and over and over, but I am hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like the way that you phrase that question because we can have as much hope sitting around our, our crew of white people sitting around here saying that we have hope and it would be nice to hear other perspectives on what we're doing. Like, are we doing a good job? Are we moving in the right direction? Um, and at the same time, I would echo what Chris said, like, yes, I, I do see hope. I do see these voices being elevated more. And in addition to that, I feel the willingness to listen. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more of that than there was five years ago. Same. I have the word listening written down at the top of my notes right here. Cause I think this whole, this whole thing is, is for me is, is two parted. It's listening and empathy since we mm. can't directly relate to these experiences and likely never will have to, Mm-mm. I mean, it comes from being a good listener, a damn good listener, listen more than you speak and just have some empathy from where these folks might be coming from. If you can do that, I think you're paving a really solid path forward for yourself. Yeah, I agree. Right on. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about wild climbers a little bit, maybe um, pivot away from the, the social stuff and get more like the, um, environmental advocacy and stewardship and things. Um, how long have you been the ED of wild climbers? About two years. Two years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's been, I think it's been a good time to be involved with the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like there's a bit of transition that's going on. A lot of work that we're doing. Um, especially I feel like our relationship, our collaboration with the land managers, um, has been really great in the last couple of years. And, not to say that it wasn't before, but I think it's just strengthening. Yeah. It's getting better. Cool. Is that mostly the forest service? It is mostly the forest service. Um, the, the majority of our crags are on the Shoshone national forest land. Um, it's also BLM sinks Canyon state park. And then, uh, Wyoming game and fish works with us a bunch too. Cause they, well, they're involved particularly with the raptors that are nesting at some of the crags. Um, and then certain portions of the crag are actually like managed by game and fish land. Where's your guys' jurisdiction, so to speak? Because like we said before, you're not the lander climbers alliance or the central. Um, yeah. Where, how far do you extend? Out? Yeah. So it's the central Wyoming climbers alliance. Um, and Fremont County is essentially the borders of our jurisdiction, which for all intents and purposes is kind of the lander area climbing or the, like the lander front is what a lot of people refer to it as. Um, and I'm not really sure where the name central Wyoming, I mean, we are in central Wyoming, but <laughs> what, what the borders of what would be considered central Wyoming is <laughs> yeah. actually but, arbitrary. <laughs> very <Yeah>. arbitrary. <laughs> <laughs> Does it uh, get up into Cody? Does that, is it, that's, uh, that's outside. No, that's okay. outside. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's really, you know, it's all the, it's Sinks Canyon, all the various crags around Wild Iris, Little Poe. 
where else am I missing? Don't forget the, all the bouldering and Josie. all the bouldering. <laughs> totally. <laughs> We're always which is also over like here. some of it's some of it's in Sinks Canyon, some of it's up there close to Wild yeah. Iris. Yeah, totally. Um, and then the North Fork, that zo- the mm-hmm. granite zone up there, um, and then it does extend out into the winds, but most of the the climbing related access over there, the Cirque is in, is that Sublette County? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, uh, what projects are on, on the agenda right now? Uh, so right now we're working on a big, um, grant, uh, state recreation funding, uh, to improve a bunch of the climbing infrastructure. Um, so working mostly with the forest service on this project, uh, hopefully extending some of the parking areas so that people aren't parking in like along the roadways, blocking roadways, the switchback that's over by North country is a big, um, point of contention, or I don't know if it's a big point of contention, but it, it gets in the way of people that are living back there. Um, and so extending some parking, hopefully putting in a new bathroom up at wild Irish. Mm. This is, um, there's a, there's a lot of camping up there and a lot of day use. And there's one bathroom in the main area. And then there's one bathroom in the Aspen Glades area, which we helped fund and put in that's in conjunction porter, with that's that. That's just a porta potty though, right? No, no, that's an actual pit toilet. Oh, down yeah. in the Aspen Glades? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. we pretty we, new. It's okay. yeah, twenty twenty was when it went in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and someone so, mentioned porta potty yesterday at the at Wild Iris, so I thought that was it. We bring a bunch of porta potties up there for the festival yeah. to add to those two toilets because it's just it's really not enough and definitely not enough during the festival so we're hoping for that and um in addition to like on the same issue of bathroom use um we've gotten funding to put in a bunch of wag bag dispenser stations and just got the okay from the forest service to put those in at various different locations wild iris sinks fossil hill um so that climbers are encouraged to not be pooping out there in the woods because it's there's just too much of it dogs are digging it up um and so that's that's one way to if you're not right by the parking area using one of those pit toilets that's one way to reduce our impact and i'm pretty excited to have those available to folks yeah yeah those bathrooms are quite a hike yeah people people aren't hiking back to poop totally no way that's rough You mentioned something funny before we started recording, but uh, yeah, pushing shit under the rug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just commenting on the, it. it's hard to get new infrastructure in place, but if we're not getting the infrastructure in, that's that's what I was saying. It's like, yeah. it's just pushing shit under the rug. Like, the shit's going to be there anyway. <laughs> right, regardless. Yeah, no doubt. Um, how long has this organization been around? Uh, so... We got our nonprofit 501c3 in 2014, so eight years. Um, and that was, I mean, there's various components of what went under that umbrella of our nonprofit organization, the Central Wyoming Climbers Alliance, that has been going on since 1993 was the first International Climbers Festival. And that has developed and grown over the years and started making some money. Um, the Bolton Anchor Replacement Fund, the BARF, Barf is another yes. component. Yep. Um, that was, I don't actually know what year. Chris, do you know what year? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I don't know what, when those folks started doing that project, but the goal was to replace all the old hardware, Mm -hmm. um, that started going in, in the eighties, nineties, it's, Mm -hmm. uh, expansion bolts predominantly that the hardware itself is like some of it's okay still. But, um, one of the things that expansion bolts does to this rock particularly is over time, it starts actually creating weaknesses in the rock. Um, and so replacing all of that hardware with glue in bolts, um, because that stuff will last forever. I mean, not forever, but like 50 plus years or so. Right. Um, so that project, um, and then also the anchors in addition to just the bolts, like putting musty hooks in, um, so that we're not, you know, lowering off through skinny little rings at the top of the mm-hmm. crags. Yep. Um, and then the climb the grand youth scholarship that I mentioned earlier is a, it's a scholarship that we do every summer to send for local high school students up the grand Teton. Um, so those were, those were kind of the three main components, which, wound up getting absorbed under the umbrella of this nonprofit partially because we're like, Oh, the climbers festival is generating this income and we can put it toward these other elements Mm -hmm. of programming. Very cool. So yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing that we're able to get all these things together. And so then, um, our organization has a threefold mission statement, which is to protect access, um, to, provide education opportunities and to celebrate climbing. And it comes from those three kind of root programs and has developed more into a lot of other things that we do as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the beginning of it. I can't remember exactly what your first question was. I definitely went on a tangent. I think just like, (laughs) yeah, what was, when did this organization form? How long has it been around? Cause you've been a part of it really formally for a couple of years. So, um, curious about the barf, uh, the replacement, uh, the anchor replacements and things. How is that structured? Do you get, do you just have volunteers go out? Do they go through some kind of a vetting process before you give them hardware and go out? So how do you kind of keep the checks and balances on that? Yeah. So there's a, there's a few different components of it. So on within our organization, we have the access committee, which is made up of board members and community members. And most of those community members that are not on the board have been involved in root development for a long time and are, you know, figures in our climbing community. Um, And so that access committee does a lot of the, like we do some rebolting days, which will, you know, invite whoever to come. Uh, Steve Bechtel usually does a little spiel on rebolting when we, when we do those days and just invite folks to come out and help and um, just trying to have somebody that knows what they're doing watch and mentor the new folks that are helping out on those days. And then there's just the handful of both access committee members and local community members that have just been part of root development for a long time. And they go out on their own accord and replace a lot of these roots that need to be fixed. Um, and the ASCA provides us with a bunch of hardware. God bless the ASCA. Yeah. God, they just give us a whole bunch of stuff too. <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a pretty simple process. You just hit them up and tell them what you need and they can probably get it to you. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, right on. Uh, how are we doing, Chris, on, on time? Oh, we got 40 more minutes. Oh, okay. Right on. Well, I think, I mean, that's, that's, you know, I think we can kind of put a bow on this and start wrapping it up. Um, curious on advice 
from you guys and how climbers can stay engaged in this space. I mean, from a sustainability standpoint, um, with staying engaged with their local climbing organization from a social standpoint. So it's not just, Hey, there's a bunch of social issues that you can talk about just kind of nonchalantly on Instagram or whatever, but it would be a flash in the pan thing. How can these climbers and listeners proceed forward to continuously stay engaged with these things? Um, from, you know, from my end, I think attending and supporting some of the events, there's so many events that go on now, um, diversifying climbing and supporting those events the best you can, whether that means, um, going to the event to support, or that means, um, you know, volunteering to help at the events or whatever it is. Um, there are countless opportunities to get involved there. Um, and then just being, uh, being, excuse my language, but being a fucking good human, you know, to start, I think is a, a really great place to be. Um, and just being a good steward for climbing. I, I think we can do a lot there. Um, and you know, something I think isn't talked about enough is, you know, and I've already mentioned, like, I, I am not good at politics. I will not be good at politics. I, I could not do Josie's job for <laughs> two seconds or the whole thing would implode. Um, but what's, you know, Wild Climbers has done and what a lot of the other, um, you know, access organizations for different areas has done with me is they don't necessarily want to be on the microphone for their events. And I do want to be on the microphone for their events. So I, they let me, um, be on the mic and, and get people to open up their pockets and to donate and to, um, come to these events. And, and I get to be the, the voice at those events. And I think for all the people out there who have these special skills that they, um, really love and maybe those skills don't extend into politics that's a great way to get involved whether you're a graphic designer or a web developer or um, you want to be an MC at these events or you just want to be a volunteer um, the fucking volunteers at the climbers festival make it happen amazing yeah. um, so get involved in those ways with these events, with whatever your special skills are, offer those things up and it's going to be really helpful. You don't have to be a policy person or, uh, you know, want to be involved in the politics to help. Well, I think that's what makes a strong board of directors. It's like, you don't get a bunch of your climber buddies together to, to form these organizations and get shit done. It's like, what skills can you bring to the table here? Are you good? Are you good with numbers? Can you do accounting? Can you do some bookkeeping? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, just identify those skills you might have and apply them in the way that fits best for that organization yeah, or, the, or that totally. event. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely well put. Um, I just, I can't remember whether I was in a meeting with Nate Lyles and Becca Mongo the other day and she, one of them said, people will give you either their time or their treasure. Mm. And that's like, it was in a conversation around fundraising, but also what I always say when people are asking about how they can help support climbing and lander or support wild climbers, um, those are the the things that I say. It's like, you know, we need funds to support our programs, whether it's 
like the ASCA donates some hardware, but we do have some expenses on that front. We also do a bunch of trail work or we're purchasing wag bags. Uh, we're funding these education programs, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so donating your money or donating your time in some way, shape or form, come help out on the trail work days, come help us replace hardware, volunteering at the festival. Um, and like you said, our board of directors has this wide variety of skills that help out in different ways. Um, and then the third component of that is the social component of, you know, doing the good things that we need to help support climbing around here, which is yeah, using wag bags, <laughs> but also spreading the word about it. Uh, if you're seeing people climbing within the peregrine closures, like, yeah, those are quote unquote voluntary closures. Right. And, you know, if we have a negative impact on the falcons that are nesting at our crags because somebody didn't, somebody was like, oh, voluntary, it's going to have a negative impact on our ability to maintain those collaborative relationships with the land managers. And maybe they'll just be like, ah, we're just going to close the whole crag instead of this little bit of area that we've helped them designate. Like this is the kind of the minimum area that we can close down so that we can climb a lot and still support the falcons in their nesting. Um, and so engaging socially to spread the word about the things that need to be done to make climbing sustainable for us all and yeah. listening as we mentioned before right right on well again i can't thank you both enough for your time this morning on a sunday this is awesome i just was so excited to come to lander to, to climb and meet you guys and have a conversation so thank you so much i really appreciate it yeah um, thanks for having us it was a really great conversation i really appreciated hearing both of your perspectives on all of this stuff yep yeah, same. I, I I just love having conversations. I mean, that's that's what this is all about. And I just remembered it's brutal. That's the word I used. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal or heinous. Yeah. Hear that, folks? <laughs> so, brutal, so brutal is easier than heinous? No, I was I using the word the heinous. But... Okay. We, we've decided those are the exact same grade, Perfect. objectively. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Good deal. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you, begin, that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org, so check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, 
jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way. And I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll catch you all next time.